It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. I'm going to ask you to take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, chapter 18 this morning, as we continue in our series for this uh, month of July, uh, focused in on the subject uh, of prayer and uh, recognizing and knowing that God has called us to be people of prayer. And we recognize and know that for many of us, this uh, produces a spirit of guilt and a spirit uh, and sense of, of letting God down. Because many of us, while we have every intention and and desire to be people of prayer, it's an area where we find ourselves week in and week out, day after day, falling short. We know we're called to be in a spirit of prayer in all of our activities, in all our comings and goings, and yet uh, things come up and activities and and other things seem to take uh, our time. And after a week of activities and work and, and scheduling conflicts, we look back and we recognize maybe as much as, as I have, I should have prayed more this week. There was so much I could have could have gone to my God and, and communed with Him in ways that I didn't take advantage of. And so as a teaching team, we wanted to take some time in the middle of the summer to remind us, all of us, including myself here, that we're called to pray, that the Christian has a great opportunity to reach out to the God of this universe and to communicate with Him uh, not only our concerns and anxieties, but opportunities to praise and worship the God who does so much on our behalf, to lift up the requests of others, those we know and even those we don't know. And today we're going to look at a famous story uh, that Jesus Himself told on the subject of prayer. You see, prayerlessness isn't something that just plagues us here in Sugar Grove in the 21st century. No, Even the first 12 disciples struggled to understand what it meant to pray. They would watch Jesus go away by himself early in the morning and pray. And they wondered amongst themselves, what is this that Jesus is doing? Oh, they knew what prayer was, but they had never seen a man so dependent on communing with the God of the universe and speaking to the Father that he had in heaven. And so Jesus would use opportunities to teach the disciples what it means to pray. And he tells this famous story about this widow in in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 1, with the focus and the theme that is very important for us to remember. And that is we need to pray and we should not give up. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But we need to recognize this morning that if we're going to get through this thing called life as followers of Jesus Christ, then prayer and perseverance must be the calling card of every one of us uh, this morning. And we should desire as we read the words of Jesus and hear the words of Jesus, leaving this place with a focus and an intention to do a little bit better than we did before. Not because we'd log the minutes, if you will, and we can then put a, a badge on our, on our chest saying, look, I, I've spent this much time in prayer. But that we would experience the true and real blessing that comes when we commune with the God of the universe. Because God has created us for communion with Him. And when we do... The fellowship that comes, the love that we experience, the peace that can overwhelm our hearts in times of trouble will be at our disposal because of a God who blesses us in such a way. If you haven't got a Bible this morning, uh, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you or in the chairs that are in the back. And our passage is found on page 877. Let me read this. It's, uh, uh, again, a, a story that many of you have grown up in the church have heard. For some, it may be brand new, but Jesus 
Jesus shares the following. It says, and Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who try, who cry to him day and night? Will God delay long over them? I tell you, God will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? on the earth. Let's go to prayer. Father God, we come before you and we recognize, just like the widow in the story, we need you. You are the judge that we come to. But you're not the kind of judge that neither uh, cares about us or is unconcerned about us or, or is more concerned about your own uh, things going on in your own life and circumstances. Lord, you care deeply about each and every person that's here this morning. You long to bring forth justice in our lives. You long to hear our cries and answer our prayers. And and because we've got a God who listens, because we've got a God who who can sympathize with our hurts and our failings and and our struggles and our temptations, you'd lean and incline your ear to hear us. Because we have you as our God, it should compel each and every one of us to our knees. It should move us to pray more often. It should move us to understand that we should not just simply pray a prayer and then forget about it. But the things that concern us, the things that are going on in our lives, and even in the the life of, of people in this world, that we would continually and persistently pray. And because we know there's a God on the other end of that prayer that is powerful and mighty, and able to deal with everything that concerns us in this day, that we would pray and not give up. Lord, I pray that this time in your word, this story that you tell, would impress upon us a life of prayerfulness and perseverance. So that when you do come, Lord, you will find this church and you will find the people of this church filled with faith and living lives of prayerfulness because you are the God that hears and answers prayer. We love you and give you the glory for it all. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In 1972, Polaroid camera introduced a phenomenal new product. It was called the SX-70. It was unlike anything that had been seen before. It would revolutionize photography uh, with its creation. An article by Owen Edward in the Smithsonian Magazine described the camera as a miracle of physics, of optics and electronics. You see, for the very first time, when a photo was taken, a blank square would emerge from the front of the camera and the picture would develop right before our eyes. For some of our teenagers, you have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) 
But this was amazing. No longer would you have to wait days and, and go to the store to have your film developed. You wouldn't have to wonder if someone's eyes were closed in the process. You would have it in an instantaneous way. It was there at that moment in 1972 that people began to see that speed and instant results were something to be had. It would change the way people would view culture. Waiting was a thing of the past. Waiting was old-fashioned. And we know that it wasn't just in our photography. We would watch things over and over again go from waiting on something to having it instantaneously. I was drawn to uh, this idea and concept this week when I was on Amazon. And on my Amazon account, something that I've taken for granted, I'd never thought about, but on my Amazon account, it has a, it has a box that says, one-click purchase. What it says is, hey, we don't want you to have to wait and type in all your information. We want you to make purchasing as quick as possible so you hit it. Here's the problem. When the little bit all boys get on Amazon, they love the one-click purchase. And I have to call and they say, Mr. Bedall, hey, get these kids in line, all right? Enough's enough. We keep canceling these orders. But listen, we love instant gratification. We love that we can have whatever we want right where we want it. I remember as a young kid thinking, wouldn't it be awesome if you could watch whatever you wanted to watch at a particular time and moment. I grew up in Hinkley in the, in the 80s, okay? It's the, for some, again, ancient history. For other ones, it was just yesterday. And we had three channels, and one spoke Spanish. And so there wasn't much, and I would dream of, man, it would be great if you could just say, I want to watch this particular movie, this particular show. And listen, I miss my opportunity in creating Netflix, right? We have at our disposal instant gratification. And waiting now, if you will, is a curse. I, I experienced the curse of waiting this last week at a local JCPenney uh, uh, department store. And I took a picture of my experience. So I went in, I wanted to buy just a couple items, and I came in. I want you to know I'm the middle of the line, by the way, when I take this picture. And uh, the wait was about 20 minutes long. And people were furious. I won't point out the people that caused a ruckus, but there were two individuals who got so worked up, two ladies, by the way, men don't get worried about waiting, two ladies, okay, who literally, listen to me, I wish I could have gotten it on camera, began to yell at how furious they were that they had to wait, and how they shouldn't have to wait, that this was a disrespectful thing with regards to their time and their patronage, okay? And one lady took her clothes, which she had a bundle of, and literally threw them to the ground and stomped out of the, out of the store. We hate waiting. We hate waiting because for some reason we believe that we're God. We believe that everybody should be able to take care of what we desire, when we want it, how we want it. We have bought into the Burger King way of your way right away. And so when God enters in to our lives, we believe that God should at a moment's notice answer whatever concern or prayer request that we have. We come to this conclusion that our lives are so important 
Because we are so important in the world that when we desire something, when we want something from God, he better come through. He better answer the prayer. And as if we're with a Polaroid camera praying, as soon as we hit the send button, if you will, uh, on it, all of a sudden we would think that what's going to come out is the result, right? I prayed this, and it should come. But what happens in our lives when we pray for something and nothing happens? What happens when something concerns us so greatly that we are so concerned that we pray not once, but twice, three times, day in and day out. Maybe we've been praying for something for days that have turned into weeks. Weeks have turned into months. Months have turned into years. And we find ourselves weary of asking the same thing over and over again. Jesus wants us to know that prayer is something that at times will not happen instantaneously. Oh, does God hear and answer prayer and sometimes answer instantaneously? Yeah. And he has that right. But there are times that God, per his perfect will and plan, allows us to wait. Right now the Badals are in a waiting period. I won't get into the details of it, but we've got some some things we're waiting on and, and hearing about and things that concern us and we're wondering and we're waiting and we're praying and God hasn't answered. And God may not answer today either. He probably won't answer tomorrow. And we're going to continue to pray because this thing bothers us. It, it concerns us. And so we lift it to our Lord. But, but how long are we willing to wait? How long are we willing to wait before we go and try to do things on our own? See, for many of us, prayer is the kind of thing that we'll throw up to God. But we recognize we better have, if you will, in the skydiving world, a backup shoot. That God, okay, you're the primary, but I know sometimes you're delayed. I know sometimes your, your, uh, your answer gets put on, uh, if you will, back order. And so I'm going to make sure that my bank account's where it needs to be, that I can purchase whatever the answer is, that I can trust in people instead of the God of the universe. And, and amongst this type of thinking in the 21st century, we are taught by Jesus, who's living in the first century, And he's talking to his 12 disciples and he's reminding them, listen, you need to pray and not give up. Even when the prayer doesn't come the first time you pray it. And so he tells this story about this widow and this unrighteous judge. And I want to, before I get into the outline this morning, address two things in the text that I want you to see. First of all, write these down, because if you want to understand this parable, and it's a parable, okay? Jesus is telling a story. And the story that we need to recognize, first of all, is the context of the story. That's not in your outline, so just put that on the side there. I need to know the context. Because if we start in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, you miss it all. Okay? And here's the thing that I want you to be careful with. I want you to know the original Bible, the original Bible, okay, in its manuscripts, did not have those numbers uh, that you have in your Bible. Okay, so there was nothing there. Now they're helpful because then I can say turn in your Bibles to Luke 18. You know exactly where to go, right? So they're helpful tools, but at times they can cause 
great, uh, if you will, injustice for us. Because what we begin to do is we say that chapter 17 has nothing to do with chapter 18, right? That what's being talked about in 17 is separated because of that 1-8, that number there, big number in your Bible. Uh, We have to disconnect those things. But I want you to know that when Jesus is articulating these things and Luke is writing these things down, the contents of verse 17, or chapter 17, and the contents of chapter 18 are flowing together. And so notice in the text what's going on. To back up a little bit, in chapter 17, Jesus is being asked the question by the Pharisees, when will the kingdom of God come? When will the kingdom of God come? Well, we notice that in the text, when the kingdom of God is going to come is when Jesus Christ is going to return. Jesus is going to come back. And Jesus is articulating that there's going to be a time of great tribulation, a time of great struggle between Christ's first coming and his second coming. The, the, the apostles call this the last days. Now we get in our mind the last days as being the time of the great tribulation that will take place before Christ's second coming. A time that still is yet to come. But what the Bible articulates as the last days are the days that were inaugurated by his ascension back into heaven. And just as he was uh, caught up into heaven, so he will come back down to earth. And he will come and he will right every wrong and deal with every injustice. And in that, in that moment in between those two comings are the days we live in. The last days. And what Jesus is trying to say is, listen... We are living in the last days. And he wants his disciples and us as his Christ followers to recognize that in those last days, it isn't going to be easy. Life is going to be hard. Life is going to be filled with all kinds of terror and all kinds of tribulation and all kinds of trials. There will be moments in this life that as Christ followers, we'll want to quit. We'll want to give up. We'll want to turn in our card and say, you know what, following Jesus is too hard. Following Jesus is too difficult. The people in this world, they fight me with regards to my faith. They, they uh, mock me. They scorn uh, my love for Jesus. And I'm just tired of it. It's too hard to be a Christian. And so I'm going to give up. And Jesus says, listen, and living in the last days, chapter 17, he moves into chapter 18 and he says, let me tell you a story that will illustrate what you and I as Christ followers are called to do. We are to always pray, chapter 18, verse 1, and not lose heart. That's the theme. That's the teaching point. And so if you walk away with anything this morning of my multiplicity of words, here's what you walk away with. The Christian is called to always pray and to persevere. To always pray and to persevere. To not lose heart. Jesus is coming back. And he promises that he will. And so what does he say in between those two comings? We are to pray. So he tells the story. So we understand the context now. This is what it means. It means how we ought to live in the last days. We're to pray and not give up. Notice the characters of the story. The characters of the story. So we got the context down. Now let's address the characters. There are three in the story. Let's look at them very quickly. First, there's a widow. 
there's a widow. Now we don't know much about her. We don't know about her husband. We don't know that she has any kids. We are told she's a widow. Now, we can recognize from Jesus' story somewhat of what's going on in her life. First of all, she probably has no one else in her life because she herself is going to the judge. In a male-dominated culture, if a widow had an issue, one of her sons or a son-in-law would go and, and, and deal with her struggles. She wouldn't have to go to a judge on her own. So this tells us that this widow probably is completely alone. It also shows us that she goes uh, to a judge for a particular reason. She has an adversary. We don't know who the adversary is. But the adversary is someone who is wreaking havoc in the life of the widow. Literally, this adversary is causing her great sorrow and pain. We don't know what it is, but we know it is so bad that she continually finds herself in front of the judge, begging for him, crying out to him, to have this torment be relieved. The second character in the story is the judge. The judge is a piece of work. A couple things about this judge. He was corrupt. The Bible says in our text that this man neither feared God nor cared about man. He even says this of himself. He, he sees it as a good thing. Now, now, why would a man say, listen, I don't care about God and I really don't care about man. Why would someone say that? One commentary said that he's articulating how great of a judge he is. He doesn't allow his religion to get in the way and he doesn't allow anything but the law to be his guide. So he's sitting there saying, listen, I have no uh, biases whatsoever. But he was corrupt. He didn't care because here's the problem. He had an agenda, which we'll learn about here in a moment. But we need to understand what did this judicial system look like? It wasn't as if he went to the courthouse, you know, as here we're in Kane County, that we would go up to Geneva, to this big, beautiful building that your tax money paid for, by the way. This big, beautiful building where the judge would reside. And if you wanted to go there, you knew exactly where they're at. No, uh, the judges in, in those days ran a circuit. They would go around to different places, set up a tent, and, and people would bring their concerns and issues. And you didn't know when the judge was going to show up. You just better be there. And you got to recognize again that he would show up to a city and people would come from all different places in the province to where the judge was at. Now the judge would have different associates around him. And those associates for the most part, and it seems if it's true of this guy who didn't care about God and, and the ethics of being a judge or man, that the associates, uh, Warren Wearsby says in his commentary, uh, most likely were taking bribes so that your case would be heard. And so this widow would have to go through all of these different people just to get to the judge to see if the judge would even, would even act on her behalf. He was corrupt. Notice he was calloused. Even though he heard in verse 4 the widow's petition and saw that she had a case, he wouldn't do what she asked. It doesn't tell us how long he goes before he answers it. But the idea is, is that she keeps coming, she keeps bothering. Is that this happens over and over and over 
again. And every time that this widow would come, he wouldn't care. He would be like, you know what, I don't have time for this. I'm not going to deal with this. You're on your own. Notice he's condescending. In chapter, verse 4, at the end of the verse, in verse 5, we learn in light of his spiritual condition, the only reason why he helps her is because of self-interest. Notice, she keeps bothering him. That word there comes from two words that literally mean to reach forth and to beat another. She sees this woman as literally lunging at him and punching at him. And it's bothering him. And I want you to notice that it doesn't bother him so much that he's afraid for his life, afraid of his safety. Literally, uh, the best way to understand this bothering is of a, of a fly that just nags and nags. And, and when it bites, it, it, it hurts and you slap at it and you're like, get out of here. I don't want you fly around here. You're a menace to me. And I don't need to deal with it. Notice he's grown weary of her. Literally, the word to beat down in the text means to literally blacken the eye. And so what is she doing? Every time this old, frail woman comes and and gives her sob story, it's blackening the eye of the judge. Now, here's the funny thing. The judge doesn't care about people, but he's concerned about how the people respond to him what they think about him and he's getting this black eye hey we've got this judge who comes and this poor old woman she's coming and she's got this issue she's got this adversary and this judge doesn't care what kind of judge is this that that doesn't care for an old lady who has a problem he could address the situation once and for all and his name is being blackened Because he's not addressing the situation. She was giving him literally a black eye in the community. Finally, we're introduced to one other character, and that's the character of God. And we learn about God. And what we're going to learn, Jesus tells us about his Father in heaven, who is completely opposite to this unrighteous, this wicked and evil judge. He's one who loves, he's one who hears, he's one that that longs to address the issues of his children. He's a God who is a God of justice, who addresses in a speedily way the concerns of his people. So we have the three characters, the widow, the unrighteous judge, and God. And now we look and pivot now to the woman. And we understand that if we are going to understand how to involve ourselves in persistent prayer, now we get to the outline, now that we've got the context and we know the characters, what do we need to know about persistent prayer? Notice, first of all, that if we're going to pray as this widow does, as an example for us in our prayer life, we need to first of all cry out to the Lord in prayer. We've got to cry out to God in prayer. How do we involve ourselves in that? What what is that going to involve or include? First of all, it involves humility. We need to recognize our position. Picture with me an older woman coming frail, walking very slowly. In every way it shows that she's been beaten down, that she's being abused. And notice that there's no one there with her. She's alone. She has nothing in her possession that will alleviate the sorrow and the struggling that she has. She comes to the witness stand and she articulates, I have an adversary. 
Again, we don't know what this adversary is, but she comes and with tears she says, please help me. This adversary is stronger than I am. This adversary is bigger than I am. This enemy that I have, she says, is ruining my life and there's nothing I can do to stop it. This enemy that I have, Judge, is, is one who, who is so big and so powerful and, and so involved in my life that I wake up every day knowing I'm already defeated, knowing that my life will never get better. I am one who is in need. Why would Jesus tell a story about a broken down widow who is poor in every way, who has an adversary that is greater than herself? Because I believe that what God is teaching us is that we are the widow in the story. We are helpless. We are broken down. We have nothing in our arsenal that can address the problems that we have. And to make it even worse, we have an adversary. And the adversary is bigger and stronger and more powerful. The adversary, if he desires, can do whatever he wants in our lives to make our lives filled with havoc and pain. And what we need to recognize this morning is when we go in prayer to the God of the universe, we recognize I am nothing and God, you are something. God, I've got problems in my life that I can't address on my own. There's not enough money in this world. There's not enough credit in this world. There's not enough uh, uh, people in this world that can help me with the problems that I have. I am helpless. And so when we go to prayer, we don't go to prayer demanding something from God. We go on our hands and knees and we say, I am lost without you. Humility. Notice this woman comes with honesty. Honesty. The widow plainly speaks speaks her plight. But notice she does not break forth in an eloquent discourse. She doesn't try to use an elaborate vocabulary to win the approval of the judge. She yells, help. She yells, I'm hurting. She yells, I'm scared. I'm anxious. I have this person, I have this adversary, they're too big and powerful for me, they're ruining my life, I have no answer, I have no plan that will enable me to have victory. I am totally and utterly defeated. She doesn't try to make herself look better. She doesn't try to make herself look like she's put together. She comes before the judge and says, help me, I have no one else to turn to but you. Sadly, for so many of us this morning, we think prayer is an activity that tells God that hooked on phonics worked for us. That if I use sanctimonious and sanctified speech, if I put enough well-positioned these, thous, and thuses into my prayer, then two things will happen. People will think I'm really holy, and God will somehow answer my prayer more quickly. What God desires is for us, like a little child, running to the arms of our daddy saying, Dad, I'm scared. Dad, I'm hurting. Dad, I need you. And yet what we do is we come and we want to put all this jargon in together to show ourselves as being better. God wants us humbly to approach him with full 
honesty. And here's why it's important. Because if we think we can fake out God, we can't. He knows our hearts. And he knows where we're at. And so we should speak honestly and openly with him. Let us be reminded that another lesson that, that Jesus taught was the contrast of two people praying. One who got up and with all kinds of flowing words and eloquence began to share with all in the temple how great he was and how glad he was that he wasn't like anyone else, especially those sinners. And God's, uh, God's ears were closed to that man. But then there was a man who who put himself on the ground and beat his chest and cried out that he was a sinner in need of a savior, in need of an advocate. And God heard his prayer. We need to be honest about the things that we're praying about. Sharing the, the cry of our heart to our God. Notice praying persistently involves hard work. This widow, notice in the text, kept coming. She keeps bothering. You should be underlining those words. Those words are indicators of what Jesus is trying to say. There's a persistency to it. There is almost a constant nagging that is taking place. What is the woman doing? She's bothering the judge. Why is she bothering the judge? Because the issue that she faces is so big and it's concerned her so greatly that it's not good enough for her to have one audience with the judge But that she's going to go every time the judge is in the province. She's going to be on the lookout. When's the judge going to be around? When when might he show up? And when she's there, when he's there, I'm going to go find him. And I'm going to get beyond his associates. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get an audience with this judge. And when I get before him, I'm going to speak humbly and I'm going to speak honestly about the things that concern me. So I'm going to do the hard work and I'm going to stand before him and listen. The first time it would have been easy. She knows that she's got an opportunity to stand before the judge and she's going to speak her concern. But think of the confidence and the boldness she had to have the second time and the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time and the sixth time. And the judge says, get this lady out of here. And she comes back the next time and says, I'm back. And my problem is still here. And I need your help. Get out of here. And she's back. And she's standing before him and saying, my problem is still here. Will you help me? Get her out of here. And she shows back up. Hey, I've still got a problem and you're my only answer. What a testimony to what it means to be a person of prayer. When the answer doesn't come, do we stop? Do we give up? If we have to wait, are we like the two women in the J.C. Penny line who throw our prayer requests to the ground and leave and say, you know what, I'll go shopping somewhere with this request, somewhere that they'll deal with it in a time that's conducive to my timetable. Or, do you endure? Do you keep praying? Do you keep going before the Lord and saying, Lord, here I am, this problem still is bothering me, and I know you're the one who can answer it. I know you're the one who has the ability to address the injustice in my life, and so I'm going to keep coming to you. And I'm going to keep coming because I know you're a loving God. I know you're a caring God. I know you're concerned about the issues of my day. And so I'm going to keep coming to you until the answer comes. It's filled with hard work and persevering prayer. It's hard. It's not easy. It takes perseverance. Notice, this widow had hope. She had hope. Why does the widow go to a wicked judge? 
Why does she keep going to a wicked judge? Why does she continue over and over again to be stopped over and over again, to be told she means nothing to him over and over again, to be told, get out of here, your request is denied over and over again because of one singular reason. She knows that the judge is the answer to her concern. That the judge has the power, the judge has the jurisdiction, the judge has the ability to right the wrong that she is dealing with. And so she says, he's the only answer. He's my only hope. Jesus tells us this story because he's reminding us as Christ followers in this last days living in this world... We are going to endure trials and tribulation. So much to the effect that we will want to give up the faith and walk away. And what prayer reminds us of, and what the story of this widow reminds us of, is that we have a judge who resides in heaven. And he's the answer. He's the one who can address the issues that concern us. He's the one that can deal with our adversaries. He's the one who can right all wrongs. He's the one who can bring justice to our times of injustice. And so we should go to him. But sadly, far too many of us do not see our God as all-powerful. We don't see our God as one who can deal with the issues that come our way. And so we turn to people, we turn to money, we turn to all myriad of things, because our hope is there, not in God. So we go over and over again, but what do we pray? Notice point number two. Our prayers of persistence need to center on God's priorities. In verse six, Jesus pivots now. From the unrighteous judge and the widow to God, his father in heaven, who's faithful, who's loving, who turns his ear to his people. And he says, God longs to answer the prayers of his children. This is different than the judge that we see in the story. And there's a reason why Jesus uses this example, this contrast. Because if the widow is persistent enough to get her answer to her struggle taken care of, how much more should we be persistent in our prayers when we know we've got a God, a judge in heaven, who hears and answers prayer? But why should we pray over and over again? Why isn't it, if we know God hears and answers prayer, why not pray it once, know that it got into God's inbox, and leave it alone? The reason why God calls us, Jesus calls us, to pray, always pray, and not give up, is so that the world will see what we're doing, and our faith will be vindicated. Write that down. We'll be vindicated. There's a movie that was made a couple years ago called The Conspirator. And it's the story of a man named Frederick Aiken. Frederick Aiken was the defense attorney for Mary Surratt. Mary Surratt was tried and would be convicted of being a part of the conspiracy that would not only kill Abraham Lincoln, but kill and maim other members of the cabinet just days after the surrender of uh, General Lee at Appomattox Courthouse. 
Now, Frederick Aiken was known to be an up-and-coming lawyer. He had fought valiantly for the North in the Civil War. He was a war hero. He was known amongst the senators and representatives of being a guy that you wanted to keep your eye on. But he would be given the task by his superiors to defend a woman that the whole country knew was guilty. They knew that she was guilty, even though the the process of, of justice had not been done. And he would go and he would defend this woman, and he would learn in the middle of the fence that she, in fact, was innocent. Even though he, at the beginning of the, of the process, thought for sure had to be guilty. Because that's what public opinion said. But Aiken, as he investigates the crime, as he investigates the conspiracy, he begins to see that she's a mom who's doing everything in her power to keep her son from killing the president. Doing everything in her power for her son to stay away from people that she knew would be bad. Now here was her only crime. She had boarded numerous times the name John Wilkes Booth. And because of that, she had been impugned as being one who was guilty. The story goes on that Frederick Aiken had worked over and over again and his stock began to fall. Even his own fiance would walk away from him because of his desire to pursue justice instead of injustice. And wonder why uh, the country had just lost one of its most favorite presidents. And they wanted someone to pay. And so public opinion went against Frederick Aiken in every way. Everybody turned against him. He was wrong and they were right. Until he would get a stay of execution by a federal judge. And something that has never taken place before in the history of the United States would take place. President Andrew Johnson would deny the stay, which was not a part of his executive power, and condemn the woman. A president condemned a woman, the first woman in all of U.S. history, to be executed. Within an hour of his uh, uh, taking away of the stay, she would be hanged, which went against the Constitution itself as well. And she was, again, the first to be executed. And the country was excited. They were happy. It was one of the most uh, read newspapers uh, in circulation of the time. Pictures were given. The first time an execution had ever been shown in any kind of picture. Mary Surratt's body hanging from the gallows. But Frederick Aiken knew different. But nobody cared. Until the Supreme Court took up the case. Posthumously, Okay, posthumously, if you will, after the death had taken place. And what did the Supreme Court find out? That there was no evidence whatsoever that would incur Mary Surratt to even spend a day in prison, let alone be executed. His defense of Mary Surratt, Frederick Aiken, is now taught in the chapter books of civil liberties in our legal system. You see, the world thought he was wrong. And he would be proved right. He would be vindicated. He is viewed as one of the greatest jurists of American history. Reminding that even in times of war and in times of national tragedy, that our constitution and the laws that we stand by must always be affirmed, even though our heart desires revenge and action. He would be vindicated. He would be vindicated. 
Now what does that have to do with prayer and persistent praying? When we pray over and over and over again, just as this woman over and over and over again goes before the judge, every time she goes, someone else learned about her plight. And they would say, you know, every time the judge would turn away, oh, that crazy kooky woman, she has this issue, she keeps clamoring about it, and over and over and over again, they would say, man, what a crazy lady. But the day that the judge finally says, you know what? Yeah, you do have an adversary. Yep, you do have a problem, and I'm going to address this problem. She was vindicated, right? The judge affirmed what she had been crying about all this time. She was proven right. Likewise, when we pray over and over again, and we allow both believer and unbeliever to know our struggle, our concern, and that we're going before God and saying, listen, I've got this concern, I've got this issue. A year ago when when we learned about Amanda's cancer, I had an employee say to me, straight to my face, God bless him, he said, listen, you've done everything right. You spend more time than I know of anybody loving God and doing what you supposedly hear God telling you to do. Following the good book. And what has it got you? Your wife has cancer. Doesn't that tell you to quit this whole thing? And I said, no, it means I pray. And I pray. And I pray. God never promises a good life. God never promises that everything's going to be great. God never promises that my wife's not going to get cancer. And so I pray and I pray and I pray. And I wasn't vindicated in that moment. Quite frankly, I had to think about that for a moment. You know what? You're right. Why am I doing all this? Until God heard and answered my prayer. And that God allowed us to show our faithfulness amidst times of trial. And and my employee could see, wait a minute, God does hear and answer prayer. Because that employee heard that people were praying all over this world. People were praying and it was uh, 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 something that he had never seen before. On the day of Amanda's surgery, we got reports that five uh, people from five different continents were praying for my wife. We got hand, listen to this, this is impressive. We got a handwritten card from 22 Senate, U.S. Senators and Congressmen who were praying in the rotunda of our U.S. Capitol for my wife. We've got that now framed at our house, something that we will never forget. And that employee watched people get on their knees and pray and amanda's walking around and and living and and enjoying life is an is a vindication that god hears and answers prayer and so when we pray and we don't give up people are watching and saying why do these people keep going to this unknown god this invisible god and when that moment comes when that prayer is answered Not only is God's name, but our faith is vindicated. You say, well, okay, that works in your life, okay. Where else do we see it? Listen to this. When the floodwaters began to come, Noah was vindicated of his prayers, right? When the plagues came over all of Egypt, it was Moses who was vindicated. When his brothers saw that his dreams had come true, Joseph was vindicated. When fire came down from heaven, Elijah was vindicated. When the fire didn't consume the Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were vindicated. When the lions' mouths were closed and Daniel was seen just sitting there, praying to his God, Daniel was vindicated. When Messiah came in Bethlehem, the prophets were vindicated. 
And listen, when Jesus Christ comes back, you and I will be vindicated. So we pray, and we don't give up. Even though people mocked the widow, even people said that it was a waste of time, she never gave up. Even though she was viewed as a fool, she never gave up. Even though they laughed at her, she never gave up. Because she knew once and for all, the judge would finally rule in her favor, and she would be vindicated. But how do we get there? We have to pray and value the things that God values. When was the last time you took inventory of your prayer life? The things you're praying for. Are your prayers simply for the things that are for you? Or the things closest to you? You know, God has a prayer list. The Bible makes it clear we are to pray for the salvation of the lost. The Bible is clear we are to pray for justice for the oppressed. The Bible says that we should pray for the freedom of the prisoner. For the care of the orphan. For food for the hungry. Housing for the homeless, clothing for the naked, dignity for the disenfranchised, mercy for your enemy, opportunity for you to show love, for the gospel to go forth to the four corners of the world, for a myriad of other things. I woke up this morning and I was reminded that there are bigger things in this world than Tim Bedall's life and concerns when I read that more than 80 are dead in Afghanistan and 300 are wounded in the latest of ISIS's reign of terror 400 families have been touched we don't even know who they are whether they are Christian or Muslim or agnostic our hearts should break because people are dying we should value the things that God values We learned a couple weeks ago that prayer is our easiest way to show God that we believe him to be the one and only. And it's the easiest way for us to show love to people whether we are living with them each and every day or never met them in our lives. Finally, we pray with the idea that victory is coming. The widow's perseverance and persistence paid off. And so will our prayers. Notice the phrase in the text. And when the Lord comes well wait a minute when the Lord comes my translation says by the way when the son of man comes in verse 8 notice and, and this is important you know sometimes you know when you see when you hear Bible teachers and you think well where did they come up with this you know what tool did they use sometimes some of the greatest nuggets of truth are found just by us simply reading the text nevertheless when Notice it doesn't say, nevertheless, if the Son of Man comes. But it says when. Definite article. It's going to happen. It's going to take place. Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he does, all of our concerns, all of our issues, all of our troubles, all of our anxieties, all of our adversaries, once and for all, will be dealt with. The greatest adversary of sin and death and the devil will be dealt with once and for all. Will not God speedily bring justice to his elects? He will on that great and glorious day. And until then, until then, we are to pray and not give up. How do we do that? We cling to God's promises. This God who is our judge tells us life isn't going to be easy. And God knows that. Remember, he sent his son Jesus to live life with us. 
To experience our temptations, our struggles, our issues, so that he could sympathize with us, so that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing we've got a high priest who recognizes and knows our sorrows. And so in verse 7, we learn a couple things. First of all, he hears his people. Notice in verse 7 it says, Will not, the, will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? I tell you the truth, he will give justice to them speedily, quickly. Isaiah 65, 24 says that even before we ask, God hears our cries. Jeremiah 33, 3, that we are to call upon him and he will answer. And then one of my favorite verses is found, and write this passage down, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his word, he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. God hears you. He hears you and he will answer the prayer of his people. Notice in verse 7, will he delay long over them? He's going to help us. He's not going to be this unrighteous and wicked judge who doesn't answer our prayer. He's going to answer it. Now, will it always be immediately? No. Sometimes it will take time. And the key is not to give up. The key is not to give in. God is wanting us to wait, knowing that James 1 says that it will produce character and perseverance and hope. And so we wait, and we pray, and we give the burden to God knowing that he will hear and answer the prayer. And then we are called, verse 8, to hold on to the end, to persevere. God has given us the tool of perseverance, prayer, to present over and over again. But if we look at prayer like we do the Polaroid camera, that we want instant results, then we misunderstand why God has given us prayer. You see, if God, listen, if he answered our prayer instantaneously, the world would never know what it means for answered prayer. But when we pray over and over again, and our neighbor watches us anguishing in prayer, and they say amongst themselves, why do they keep doing this? Don't they know they should just get on it on their own and deal with it on their own? Why do they keep going to this invisible God who, who, who doesn't exist? Until they watch year in and year out, you praying for something. You persevering and holding on to the end. And when God in that moment chooses to answer your prayer, they sit there and say, wait a minute. There is a God who hears and answers prayer. There is a God who loves his people. There is a God who inclines his ear to listen to our prayers. You see, in a world of instant gratification... Let us remember that God doesn't work that way. That he longs to build our character and our perseverance. So whatever we're concerned about, pray in these last days and don't give up. You'll be glad when the answer comes that you stuck with God. And you will show the world how much he loves you. And that he's faithful to hear and answer your prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I thank you for the vehicle and mechanism that you've given us in prayer. But even greater than that, Lord, I thank you that you are a God who longs to hear from your people. 
even the same prayer request over and over again. And I know, Lord, right now, there are people praying for things they've been praying for for a while. For a broken relationship, for a financial concern, a medical issue, for issues of depression, for an opportunity to come, for a trial to finally once and for all pass, for a child to come back to you. And we pray, Lord, and we become at times even despondent over our concerns. Let us never forget, like the persistent widow who kept coming and coming and coming, that even a wicked judge heard and answered her concern and prayer. How much more will you, a God who is so loving and so patient and so kind and so good to us, will you answer? We know you will, and that's why we keep praying. And that's why we don't give up. So, I, Lord, I pray that this church will be a praying church, that this church will be a pers- uh, persevering church in these last days, so that the world may know there's a God in heaven because they see that God at work in the lives of each of these people and collectively in the lives of this church. So send us forth in this place in prayerfulness each and every day and each and every moment that you would enter into our lives that we would invite you in that way so that the world may see that we will in these last days pray and never give up. We love you and give you the glory for everything that's been done, everything that's been said, every word that's been sung, every prayer that's been prayed, every message that's been taught this morning. We give you the glory because you're the only one who deserves it. And it's in Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen.